Father God, we are grateful that your faithfulness is great. It is new every morning. We thank you for your faithfulness to us for this past year of 2016, for your protection, your provision, your sustaining grace. Uh, Lord, even when we uh, have failed you in so many ways, uh, Lord, we are grateful that your love never fails. Uh, we are grateful that we can look towards this next year knowing that your compassions are new every morning. They are new every year. And so, God, we pray that you would remind us of who you are as we come to your word, that you would speak uh, truth, grace, righteousness, mercy to these young ones and to us as well. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Mark, what, were, what, was the, uh, what was that new hymn that you were uh, playing, you guys were playing? What is the name of that? What's some of the words of that hymn? Yeah, the offertory. Ah, once in a royal day, yes. Maybe others have heard that tune, and uh, it was uh, really well executed by our gifted musicians. Thank you so much. Well, uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yes, we've been saying that a lot lately. Uh, people were saying that to me on the way into worship and, and during the uh, greeting. Uh, you know, Happy New Year. When you say that, uh, you're saying that you wish that person uh, well. You're wishing them uh, peace and happiness and the best things of life and goodness uh, for that person. And, you know, in a world where there's often a lot of discouragement and sometimes despair, just such words can encourage hope for a better future. Uh, but for believers in the God of the Scriptures, we are given a certain hope in the God of all compassions and of all grace. Uh, for even in the darkest times, you know, we, uh, we open this service up with lamentations chapter 3, and as Bill uh, reminded us, it was probably the darkest uh, of the books of the scriptures, where Jerusalem was, was utterly destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the people were in captivity uh, for their sins, and yet right in the middle of that book, uh, it says, I have hope because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail, they're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so for believers, uh, because we have such a God of all compassion, we can say Happy New Year in a very deep way. Now, we don't know what love and compassions that God may have in store for us in 2017. But what if it included Jesus coming back? What if Jesus came back in 2017? In 17. If you knew that, would it change you? <laughs> for instance, if you knew for sure that Jesus was coming back in 2017, would it change the way you prayed? Or the way you would read your scriptures? Or cared for or loved or shared your faith with your family members or your neighbors or your co-workers who you sense might be far from God? Would it change your spending? and giving patterns? 
Would it impact the way you respond to those who slighted you or hurt you or viewed uh, how you viewed your present sufferings? If you knew that Jesus was coming back in 2017, do you think knowing that would change you in any way? You know, I really, I confess to you that I don't think enough about the seriousness of that. It is not regularly on my mind. I don't know if Jesus is coming back in 2017, but in the gospel that we are going to be studying over the course of the next months, we find him saying these words in Matthew 24. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day of Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. And so today we're launching a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, about Christ as the coming king and his kingdom. Matthew is the first gospel account in the New Testament which was written not only to awaken and strengthen the faith of Jewish readers and of Jewish Christians to confirm to them that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of David, uh, who had come to bring salvation to the world, but also that Jesus came for the Gentiles to awaken and strengthen Gentiles and Gentile Christians who Jesus also came uh, to redeem. Now, what triggered my consideration of the possibility of Jesus' soon return was on Wednesday when Cindy Newton, our director of, Christ of uh, children's ministry, brought to my attention that the passage of this sermon text today is the same exact number of the date of today. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The date is 1, 1, 17. Now, I have been preaching for 36 years, and this has never happened before. Now, I am not saying or connecting any more meaning than it was just mere coincidence. But it caused me to pause and to think that God who orders all things according to his purposes and his goodwill, that there are no random things in the universe. And this scripture we are considering today is full of the references of the God of promise who penetrates and works in the history of our world and who has come into our world at a particular time and place and is on a compassionate mission to our world and in our world. And so we're going to be reading the genealogies, and I'm just going to warn you that most of us, when we hit this, uh, we often just kind of rip through it because our eyes kind of glaze over. It's a list of names, but let me say this. This is the very Word of God, and He wrote this, and it has importance, and it has meaning uh, for us. And so let us consider Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminabadab, and Aminabadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuad, and Abuad the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, and the Mary. Of Mary, and the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew wrote this account while the church was facing persecution. And he wrote this account to encourage and to strengthen believers uh, to remain true to their faith in the midst of their suffering. It also is a reminder in this account that as Matthew writes, he is writing that we have a covenant God of promise who comes down and who gets dirty. Uh, We have a God of promise. We have a God of identification, and we have a God on mission. And so it opens up with the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Greek word for genealogy, it means genesis or beginning, which happens to be the title of the first book of the Old Testament. In the Greek Septuagint, it is uh, genesis or, or beginning. And just as Genesis gave the story of one beginning, God's creation, and covenant relations with Israel, so the Gospel of Matthew gives the story of a new beginning, the arrival of Jesus the Messiah in the kingdom of God. The opening words that we find in the New Testament, these first opening words, talks of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and special importance to, had special importance to the Jewish audience, which traced its ancestry through the covenants God made with Israel. The heading with Jesus' name and his ancestry is packed with meaning. The common practice often is using a single name of a person that carried religious significance. This book is about Jesus, his historic everyday name in Hebrew. Jesus, or Jeshua, 
Yahweh saves, or shortened for Joshua. And Christ, the title derived from the Hebrew, Messiah means the anointed one. And it hark backs to David, the king who was anointed as the king of Israel by Samuel. The word Christ, or Messiah, came to be associated with the promised anointed one, the one who would be the light of hope for Israel. God had promised through uh, David, through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You need to recognize that Matthew... And the other apostles confirmed through his birth, his life, and miracles, death, and resurrection that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, the Son of God. Of course, Israel was expecting a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of king, and a different kind of kingdom. They thought that God's anointed one would come to uh, rescue them from their oppressors, the Roman oppressors, and establish a physical kingdom. But the Jews overlooked the passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, which talks about the Messiah coming as a suffering servant, who would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, who would carry the infirmities and transgressions of the world to bear the sins of many, to justify and make many righteous, and to free God's children from oppression of judgment and sin. But in the Gospel of Matthew... We find over 53 Old Testament quotes, 76 references that all converge in the fulfillment that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one that was promised. Matthew doesn't just say that Jesus Christ was the promised son of David. It also says that he was the son of Abraham. Now, why is it that Matthew feels it necessary to mention that Jesus is a son or the son of Abraham. It is, is, it is, this, it's not something uh, that's just redundant here, but it is packed with meaning because the promised covenant that God made to Abraham back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, says that the blessing on Abraham, the promise that there would be an offspring that would bless all nations, Included not just the Jews, but all the Gentiles, which includes mostly everyone in this house. If you're a Gentile, to hear the word son of Abraham should have special import and meaning because that blessing, that promise that God made to Abraham extends to you. And we, it ends, uh, Matthew Gospel ends with uh, the call to make disciples of all nations. And, and so we see this movement of God uh, and his promised blessing. And so what is the point that Matthew is making? Jesus meets the genealogical criteria to be the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. This is established. The rest of the gospel will unveil how he is not just the son, uh, but he is the anointed one, the Christ. Now, why did Matthew go into all these details? Because God's Spirit through him wants to establish the veracity and the credibility of Jesus. He's arguing the case of the validity of who Jesus is and why he came to be believed as the son of David, the Christ. The faith, you see, of 
the God of the Bible is not a leap to the darkness of irrash irrationality. It is a credible, reasonable, historical, rational faith. And we find like in Acts, when it opens up, it talks about how Jesus showed himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs or infallible proofs that he was alive. And so Matthew opens up, and the proofs that he's presenting are the promises that Jesus fulfilled, the genealogical record. This is his pedigree. You need to know that in your head that Jesus has the credentials to be your Savior, that he meets the criteria, he meets the standards. Because when the storms of hardships and threats come, a faith that is based on feelings and emotions will not stand up. Jesus has the credentials in biblical history, in church history, and he has credible credentials in your history. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the promised one, the anointed son of God, and he will not let you down, and you can trust him. But God is also not just a God of promise, who fulfills all of the promises of the Old Testament. He is the God of identification. And it says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In verse 6. In this genealogy, there's 46 people whose lifetime spans 2,000 years. All were ancestors of Jesus. Some were considered great people of faith, like Abraham or David or Josiah. A bunch we know very little to nothing about. But what does come forth in this series of genealogy are a list of names who are associated with great scandals, with great sin and moral failure. What it does include were the names of five women who were not normally included in Jewish genealogies. But here Matthew makes a very bold and clear association with the bloodline of Jesus being connected to women and also to scandalous sinners, societal, marginal outcasts. In verse 3, we see Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, Tamar was Judah's uh, daughter-in-law, and she was slighted. And I can't go into all the details of her story, but she felt slighted by her father-in-law. And so she disguised her, basically... Uh, the sons of Judah that she had married were, were dying off. She'd get married to one, and he would die. And then, because of the type of laws, she would marry the next brother. And he died. And Judah was a little bit hesitant to give her any more sons. And so he stopped. And uh, he wasn't caring for her. Well, Ju well, Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute has sex with Judah, her father-in-law, and bore Perez and Zerah. This is in our Lord's family history. In verse 5, when we see Rahab, we see Rahab. She was a Gentile woman of Jericho. Uh, she was a prostitute. It was believed that she was running a brothel. She became a hero when she saved the two Hebrew spies we find in Hebrews chapter 11, one of the heroes of the faith. And then we see Ruth. Ruth is mentioned, who is a Moabitess. 
The origins of Moabites was when Lot's daughter got drunk, had sex with him, and the older daughter bore the son Moab. And so the Moabites were the descendants of a drunken, incestuous relationship. Ruth, the great-great-grandmother of Jesus, was a Moabitist. And then see David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Then that was obviously Bathsheba, the woman David committed adultery with, who got pregnant and whose husband was murdered by David in a cover-up attempt. While the number of kings listed under David were decent, many were wicked. Ahaz, who's mentioned here, sacrificed his son on the altar and followed the detestable practices of the nations, the scriptures tell us. Manasseh, it says, led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. He led Judah into sin with his idols, also shed so much innocent blood, it says, that he filled Jerusalem from one end to the next. And then Ammon did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He worshipped the idols his father had worshipped. What? What is the point that Matthew is attempting to make. Well, Jesus chose to be born not in a royal blue blood pedigree line of great nobility and innocence, but in a tainted, scandalous line. The God of the Scriptures is the God who identifies with sinners and outcasts. The God of the Scripture gets down and dirty. I had a I had a friend recently said, I could not run for political office because I have too many skeletons in my closet, and I would like to keep them there. What is amazing about this genealogy is that the God of the Scripture exposes all of the skeletons. They're all out there for everybody to see. <laughs> this is my credential. This is my family tree. This is my identification. God brought salvation out of scandal. God brought salvation out of sorrows. The God worked in history is not limited to human failures and sins. He works through big sinners. He works through ordinary sinners. He works with the marginalized. He works with the despised. He will associate with all kinds of people to accomplish his, his saving purposes. God does not choose us based on our righteousness, our goodness but on the basis of his pure love and grace. God is faithful to his covenant promises to Israel and to the nations. And so, G so Matthew actually sets the stage for Jesus being born in the midst of a scandal and crisis in a context of shame and dishonor, of rumors about Jesus' illegitimacy in the scandal because God had determined that Emmanuel would be God with us, with sinners. And so God meets us in our deepest sin, in our deepest shames with his presence and his forgiveness and his mercy. I remember the song that Kirk Franklin uh, wrote, Imagine Me, and one of the lines said, this song is dedicated to people like me, those who struggle with insecurities, acceptance, and even self-esteem, who never felt good enough, who never felt pretty enough, but imagine God whispering in your ear, letting you know that everything that has happened is now. It's all gone. Every sin, 
every mistake, every failure, it's all gone. And so the God of the scriptures is the God who comes, he identifies with us in our weakness, in our sin, and the deepest shame that we can imagine. And he exposes that to the world, and Jesus does that for you and me. We should always read, J.C. Ryle says, you sh we should always read this catalog with thankful feelings. We see here that no one who partakes of human nature can be beyond the reach of Christ's sympathy and compassion. Wow, what an important reminder. You know, some people feel like they're just too, too bad. They're too sinful. They're too wicked. They have too much stuff in their history that the God of the universe could never love me and forgive me to all the things that I have done that I continue to struggle with. But this passage reminds us that, no, that's not true because the God of the Scriptures, the God who identifies with the hardest, worst, deepest shames and sins that humanity can, can reveal. But finally, we see that this God is a God on mission. He's a God on mission. And so we see in this verse, in the, one of the opening verses, he says that, in verse 16, that Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And it talks about the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and David to the deportation to Babylon were 14, and from deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And what we see here, by the way, is that Matthew is, is putting in, in different sections the genealogies chronologically, but he's, he's, he's structuring them in these 14 units. And we don't have all the names of all the people. And it's 14 because it was a means to help people to memorize these genealogies. But the point here is that it's all focused, and it's all focused on Christ, on the Messiah, the Anointed One. It's all preparing the foundation for Jesus' mission in his life. This is the anointed one, the Messiah, who has come on mission. So moved by the Holy Spirit, Matthew writes this account of Christ's life and the teaching not only to save sinners, but to recruit redeemed sinners into a band of brothers and sisters who would be equipped and assured and encouraged in their faith to be on mission with him. The form of discipleship that Jesus institutes is unexpected and shocking because he breaks down the barriers between social classes, overturns religious conceptions of well-being, abolishes slavish adherence to religious cultural traditions. It begins with the calling of a local tax collector, Matthew. <laughs> so Matthew's story, it doesn't happen until Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus is walking by this tax collector booth, and here's Matthew, and Jesus immediately says, follow me. And Matthew gets up out of his seat and immediately follows Jesus, astounded that Jesus, who was the rabbi, the popular, rising, great, attractive rabbi of that day, would stop to a tax collector who was considered to be a, uh, a traitor to the Jewish people, uh, an embezzler, uh, a big sinner, would invite him to follow Jesus. And so he, he, we find that Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. 
And it says that many tax collectors and, quote, sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collector and sinners? And Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn where... Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so what's interesting is that, you know, Mark and Luke, they never bring in the story of Matthew as this uh, this scandalous sinner. But Matthew personally exposes himself and his profession in this way. It's been said that Jesus caused the unexpected and unappreciated types of people to follow him. He encounters resistance from the religious establishment. And so Matthew is making a point, uh, his own personal case study. As he gives us this gospel account, he lives in the context of Jesus' amazing grace, and he's on mission. And so the question is, are you and I living in the certainty of God's promises? We have this covenant God. He's made promises that go back thousands of years. Matthew opens his account just showing through history that God's promises are being fulfilled. At the end of Joshua's life, he says, not one of the good promises that God has made has, has not been fulfilled. Every single one of them has been fulfilled. Paul tells us that all the promises in Christ are yes in Christ Jesus, that we can count on God. There's many promises that are made during political elections, and often many of those promises are never kept. The God that you worship, the God of the scriptures, goes on record. He makes promises, and he will keep his promise. But the next question, are we living in the awesomeness of his humility? Do we stand in the awe of this high and holy God who has come down so far to rescue hell-bent rebels like you and me. The scriptures tell us, Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He comes down. Do you realize, do you realize, in the deepest core of your soul, that there is no sin and so bad, no crime, so grievous, no shame, so shameful that it is too ugly and too grievous and too shameful for Christ to address and touch and heal and to rid you of. The Savior of the Scripture identifies to the utter extremes, our depravities, to the point, the Scriptures tell us, that he becomes sin itself for us. We find in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, do we live in the mission of Christ's mission in the world? Am I seeking to understand what that is? Am I seeking to be equipped for that calling? You know, Jesus says that he comes as a doctor, a doctor not for the well, but for the sick that he has come to save sinners. And so, Jesus comes on mission. Uh, over the course of these uh, weeks, as we look at Matthew, we're going to be kind of talking about the mission of God and where we are in, in that. <clears throat> 
one of the things that happens at the end of all the presidencies uh, are appeals uh, for clemency or for pardon uh, for, for many who are incarcerated. And, uh, and President uh, Obama received over like 30,000 appeals uh, for pardon or clemency. And uh, it, it was an article that talked about that he uh, provided clemency pardon or, or, or shortened sentences for about 1,324 of those 30,000. And actually, uh, he has gone on record to provide more clemency. And clemency, by the way, is a word that means mercy. <laughs> it means mercy. There are appeals to shorten or to pardon. And so uh, President Obama has gone on record to be one of the most generous and most merciful of the presidents in this. If you look at statistically, it's like 4.4% of all those who request it. Now, and that's a wonderful thing to have a president pardon or provide mercy or shorten a sentence or provide, uh, you know, the finish of a, of a sentence. But the God of our scriptures and the God that we come to this table, 100%. You humble yourself and you repent. All your sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. You just ask, you just humble yourself and you just say, Jesus, save me because of my sins. And he does that. Micah says, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but to light, but the light to show mercy. So, the Lord Jesus knows that we have a hard time thinking that, we, that there is such a God who has such a big heart to forgive such wicked sinners like us. And so that's why he gives us this table. He gives us a tangible physical reminder regularly to tell us no it's true you are forgiven you can bank on this this is real forgiveness this is real part like to ask the officers to come forward and so he gives us these tangible signs and seals of his covenant promises and these covenant signs and seals are signs and seals of his forgiveness of sins as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And so that on the night that Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And with the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. Drink of this in remembrance of me. Who is this table for? It's for anyone who has humbled themselves and has said, Jesus, save me. I am a sinner. I need you to save me from my sins. And a humble, repentant cry to, to this God, you can be assured of full pardon, full release from your sins. If you've done that and you're seeking to follow him in repentance and obedience in his church, then you are welcome to this table. If you haven't come to that point, I encourage you to let this cup pass and that you would pray that God would reveal Jesus to you in ways that will bring you to that place where you can cry out 
and that you can be a son or a daughter through faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you give us these uh, concrete signs of your love. Lord, we, we have horrible memories. Uh, we, we know that you say you love us, but we forget. Uh, and so, God, we pray that you remind us of your deep covenant love that goes all the way back to David, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam, that you, Lord, uh, are a forgiving God. And so, God, remind us now and empower us to live in the mission that you've called us to through this meal. And we commit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of sins. Drink of this in remembrance of me.
Lord Jesus, we wish we were there watching you uh, ask Matthew to follow you as he was sitting at the tax collector's table counting his change. And uh, we wish we could have seen the look on his face when uh, you asked him, actually commanded him to follow you. Lord, uh, help us to live in that grace. Help us to remember what you have done for us, that we might be light in this world, that we might be people of compassion to our neighbors, that we might be a people that celebrate your reconciling work in our midst and as a community. And Lord, use us in your pleasure for, the, uh, for your glory this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we celebrate.